So we're on our last lesson, the resurrection of Jesus, and Lord, we want to pray that you will instruct us, and uh, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, which uh, convinces us that your word is true, and the surety that we have in our own resurrection, because Jesus rose from the dead, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is going to be John 20 and 21. But we start here with the first section, Mary discovers the empty tomb, chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. Mary, Magdalene, came when it was still dark, so very early in the morning, and uh, saw the stone taken away, so she ran and told the other disciples. It's interesting, you see Peter's character here, John, who's the, the other disciple. John always never names himself. But he outran him. He was faster than Peter. He went and he was tentative and kind of waited. And Peter goes charging in, <laughs> right into the tomb. That's just Peter's nature. But verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Jesus is neat. He's tidy. <laughs> If someone came in and stole him and, you know, this was uh, thieves and things like that, the idea that they would neatly fold things and stuff, it just goes against the that theory. But then it talks again about verse 9. They came, they saw this. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So can anyone tell me some Old Testament scriptures that talk about the Messiah rising from the dead off the top of your head? Can I get somebody to look up some things? Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 22, 14 and 15. And then there's Isaiah 53, 8 through 10. So, okay, the Isaiah passage... This is of the suffering servant. So he says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he was killed, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Okay, we saw that prophecy fulfilled last week. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord is pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, then it switches. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He's dead, and then he's prospering, and he's prolonging his days. So that's an indication of resurrection. Psalm 16, 9 and 10. I think this is the clearest passage. You will not let your holy one the Messiah, see decay. So he will not be dead long enough to decay. So these are the scriptures they had that pointed to resurrection. Job also says that in my flesh I will see God and my Redeemer will stand on the earth. You can't fault them too much for verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. But anyway, Jesus also used Jonah as a type. Jonah, swallowed by the fish, the liberals say, oh, that's just a story, you know. They poo-poo that, they laugh at it. Jesus took it as history. Jesus took it as narrative history when he said, just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days in the bowels of the earth. So he was using Jonah as a type of his resurrection, and it, the time period would be the same, three days, and then he would rise from the dead. You know, Jesus said this several times. He said, I will be killed by the chief priests, the elders, and in three days I will rise again. I mean, he said that more than once. One of those times, Peter used by Satan, said, no, that's not going to happen to you. They should have realized it because Jesus made it much more clear than the Old Testament did. The Old Testament, there are allusions to it, but Jesus clarified it very much when he was with them. But obviously they weren't listening when he told them that. They didn't believe him. We're going to go to section B, Mary encounters the Lord, verses 10 through 18 of chapter 20. So the disciples went in, saw, John says he believed, Peter was thinking, and they went home. Mary stayed and cried. Then, verse 12 and 13, she saw two angels. Would you like to see an angel? You might be scared out of your wits if you saw them the way they really looked. It's interesting when we see in heaven what angels look like. They are freakish, man. And that vision of Ezekiel, they're like things that we have no experience with. But on earth, they appear as men when they show up on earth. So angels, the holy angels now, there are angels that are unholy, which are the demons. But Hebrews 1, verse 14 says of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So I bet you have had angels that you couldn't see helping you sometimes because that's their job. They were created as to help those who will inherit salvation. That's us, which is encouraging. So anyway, here the angels have a message. The angels' service to, at this time to Mary, you know, the other gospels tell there were other women there as well as Mary Magdalene, uh, to clarify for them what had happened here. I have a reference, Matthew 28 and verses. 5 through 7 says, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. There's that phrase again, very frequent in the Bible. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. So the angels are clarifying, you know, he told you that this would happen. It has happened. Do not freak out. Do not be afraid. Then look at verses 14 and 15. She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. And then uh, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was him, which is interesting. And then Jesus spoke to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She still didn't know him. That's interesting. You know, there are a couple of explanations uh, why that was. Maybe because she you know, thought he was dead. But one of the explanations is a supernatural masking of him. And we see that also in Luke 24, 13 through 16, where he's on the road to Emmaus. So Luke 24, verses 13 through 16 says, Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place, as far as the crucifixion, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So I, th I think it was a supernatural blindness or unfamiliarity that was there until Jesus said her name. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, and she recognized him. That's interesting too, isn't it? Jesus is the shepherd, and my sheep will know my name. So that, that's very interesting that when he said her name, 
she knew who he was. Now, that gives us hope, too, doesn't it? Because we live in a very dark time. You know, you can't go a day and look at the news without some other disaster happening. The fact that he's alive gives us tremendous hope, you know, and what he has told us will happen with us in the future gives us incredible hope. He's the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep know his name, or he knows their name. So John 10, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up by some other way, he is a thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens... And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He knows our name. Anyway, that is very interesting. So he, she didn't know who he was until he called her by name, and then she calls him Rabboni, her teacher. Now, verse 17 is a challenging verse. And so I've given you two handouts. They're both by Thomas Constable, uh, and they're from his online notes. He has it's he has a commentary on the whole Bible online. So Jesus said to her in verse 17, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. In the online notes, the best explanation of this of what Jesus says here, seems to be that Mary was holding on to Jesus as though she would never let him go. As Barrett put it, she is trying to recapture the past. She clasps him as her own, never to lose him again. Jesus either told her to stop doing that, or if he knew she was about to do it, he was telling her not to do it. He was almost ready to disappear permanently. The reason she should release him was that he had not yet ascended to the Father. He had other work to do first. Only in heaven would it be possible for loving believers such as Mary to maintain contact with Jesus forever. This view makes good sense of the text and harmonizes with Jesus' invitation to Thomas in verse 27. Thomas needed to touch Jesus to strengthen his faith. Mary needed to release him because she had no reason to fear losing him. So he bade the disciples touch him for the confirmation of their faith, she must believe him and adore him, but must not expect to be familiar with him as formerly. He forbids her to dote upon his bodily presence and leads her to the spiritual communion which she should have with him after he was ascended to his father. So, in other words, the relationship is changing. We have contact with Jesus, too. Our contact with Jesus is by the Holy Spirit. It is not a physical contact now, and that he is transitioning to this. In... Uh, Verse 18, so Jesus told her this, and then Mary said, okay, so he left, she left him, and she told the disciples, as he instructed her to do. Section C, Jesus appears before the disciples, verses 19 through 23. Here we're going to start to see some of the characteristics of the resurrection body. So verse 4, 24, excuse me, John tells us that Thomas was not with them the first time Jesus appeared. Thomas was absent. And it doesn't tell us where Thomas was, just that he was absent. And then he also made the point of saying that the doors were shut. Okay, they were in a room, the doors were shut, and Jesus appeared. So here we get an inkling of some of the things this resurrection body does. Remember, we'll have a resurrection body like his. I find that extremely exciting. So he can, I don't know what it is, it reminds me of Star Trek, teleport. And so he appears in the middle of the room, and they freak out, you know, which is understandable, you know. It's beyond belief. It is beyond belief. So Jesus 
shows up and says, peace be with you, which is much like, do not be afraid. Jesus is always telling us, do not be afraid. So Jesus appeared, and they thought he was a ghost. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 39, he corrects that impression. He said, see my hands and my feet. Okay, so they have scars and they have wounds that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have and also in the Luke passage Jesus asked for something to eat and he ate so he is not a spirit he has a corporeal touchable body with flesh and bones and scars or wounds Jesus now, and I've said this before, this is the first resurrection. There are resuscitations. There are resuscitations in the Old Testament. Elijah brought a boy back. Elisha brought a boy back. Jesus brought three people back from the dead in his earthly ministry, Um, but they did not come back in a resurrection body. They came back in a body like we have, and they would subsequently die. This body does not die. So 1 Corinthians 15.20 tells us, that Jesus, in his resurrection, is the first fruits. And this goes to the, um, the Jewish harvest schedule, if you will. So 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So there's two resurrections, right? There's the first resurrection, there's the second resurrection. If you're in the first resurrection, that is the resurrection to life. The second resurrection is the resurrection to damnation. Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the tribulation saints being part of the first resurrection. But there's three sections of the first resurrection. Christ is the first fruits, and this goes along with the Jewish harvest scheme. There is a festival of the first fruits, right, that the Jews celebrated. Christ is the first fruits. Then there's a general harvest. That is the church at the rapture. We will be resurrected as a group, both dead and alive. All those in the church from the day of Pentecost till the rapture. The dead go first, and then the living go. That's how I want to go. Our sin has been judged already because we're joined with Christ. Our sin was judged on him at the cross. We will be judged after the rapture in heaven at the Bema seat. And that judgment will be on our works that have been done in faith. We will be rewarded for what we have done in faith. Anything that we have not done in faith will not be rewarded. There is a camp that teaches that the Bema seat judgment is more frightening, being cast into outer darkness and things like that. And they attribute that to Christians who are not walking with the Lord, you know. No, they're not. No, no one is in sleep when they when they die. They're conscious. You know, he has to be God in order to have the ability to do what he promised to us, to save us from our sin, to raise us from the dead. He has to be God in order to do that. Four of the gospel writers, the apostles, address Jesus as God. Yeah, Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, and there's no getting around it. So as far as the first resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits, one. And he is raised somewhere in the universe. He is in a body in heaven, and he's praying for us. And he's over the church, and he's giving spiritual gifts, and he is building his church. He's doing all these things now in a body. He is not a spirit. He is in a body right now with flesh and bone. And then we will be raptured. We will be resurrected. And then the gleanings 
which is also part of the Jewish harvest scheme, because we are resurrected and raptured before the tribulation. Immediately we are rewarded at the Bema Seat Judgment, and we are married in heaven to Jesus. Seven years pass, we return, and at the beginning of the millennium there's the gleanings, which are the Old Testament saints, and you can find that in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. The Old Testament saints are resurrected, and the tribulation saints, or those who have died in the seven-year tribulation period, who did not take the mark of the beast, who were converted by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. So that's the first resurrection is in three parts. Jesus, the church, then the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation saints. And the resurrection to death, or to the lake of fire, comes at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand-year reign. The unsaved will be raised in resurrection bodies that are fireproof, and they will be judged at the great white throne, and then they will cast into the depth determined by their sin, into the lake of fire. So that's why we want to be big mouths about the Lord, because we don't want anyone to be involved in this great white throne judgment. Yeah, I mean, see, if you're ever feeling down, just think about stuff like this. Think about your resurrection. Think about uh, this millennial kingdom. It just gives you the willies, and then everything else doesn't bother you as much. <laughs> yeah, verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So Jesus is commissioning them as the Father commissioned him. Jesus came to the earth as a missionary. He came to save in his first advent. And now he is sending the apostles in the same way. You know, the church is not to save the world. We are not to promote uh, universal health care. Uh, we are not to eradicate poverty because the Bible says you can't do that anyway. We are not to try to overthrow governments and put up one we like better. We are to proclaim this message. People can be saved from their sins by trusting Jesus Christ. That's one. The second is we are to edify the saints. How do we do that? By things like we're doing now. We study his word. We have fellowship with each other. We worship the Lord. The purpose of the church is narrow. It is not this broad thing that we're going to make the world a utopia. We, we are not going to do that. We can't do that. It's a uh, waste of our time to try to do that. We should be telling people everywhere, all over the place, that they can be saved from their sins by one simple step, believe in Jesus Christ. And then we learn to walk with him as we come together, we study the word and worship, and we glorify him all in the process. The church you know, mistakenly thinks you keep a whole bunch of rules after you're saved. That's not what you do. All you do is continue to believe. What do you believe? You believe what Jesus has said. So when Jesus says, do not go into debt, for example, you believe that. And you say, okay, I will not go into debt. Why? Because I have faith in Jesus and his word. That part is sanctification. And there's a whole host of things that go into sanctification. You know, it goes to our speech. He wants to purify our speech so that we do not any longer talk like longshoremen. He wants to purify our sexuality so that our sexuality is ha as he intended in a biblical marriage, you know. All sorts of things. That's the process of discipleship, but that, you know, you do that by faith, 
and it's a process of growth. You can't do it all at once. It would it would blow you away. You know, if you come, if let's say you're a prostitute, you got saved, and now you're supposed to be Saint Teresa. You know, it's not going to happen. It's gradual. As you say, oh, okay, I should stop doing that. I should start doing this. You know, for example, how how often are we to pray? What do cr- most Christians do? They cease. They don't pray. Why? Because they don't believe that it makes a difference. Christians, why do you think the prayer meeting is the least attended meeting of the church? I'm just saying, if people believed that they would come to the prayer meeting and pray and God would change things, everybody would be here. See, that is because they believe in Jesus to be saved, but they don't yet believe that when he says men should always pray and never give up, that he means it. They don't believe that. And so they're not willing to do it. Um, We don't go from total unbelief to maturity in an instant. It is a gradual process over time. And as we try things that Jesus tells us to do, you know, that is continuing to believe after you're saved. That's what that means. Our prayer meeting now... I mean, the the answers are long, many, and miraculous. Prayer works, and it matters. Verse 22, it says, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So when did the Holy Spirit come wholesale? To the church. When did the church start? Church started at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit came, and there were physical manifestations. There were flames of fire on their heads. They spoke in other tongues, things like that. So the question is, what is this? Yeah, that is the question. What is this? He said, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So that's your other thing from Thomas Constable. There are several views on what this means. What happened at Pentecost was analogous to that. He did pour out his spirit on the disciples, not on the whole nation, but on the disciples. And they began to, you know, and they had all these miraculous manifestations. But he says, one view is that Jesus gave these disciples a temporary infusion of his spirit. The act of breathing on them recalls the creation in which God breathed his life into Adam. Thus, Jesus may have been suggesting that he was doing a new creative work by filling these men with his Holy Spirit. Later, Jesus explained that the Spirit would come upon his these disciples again in Acts 1 verse 8. So, this present act of Jesus then may have been may have represented a preliminary and temporary enabling that helped the disciples understand what they could expect more fully and permanently later. That baptizing came on the day of Pentecost. Then he gives some problems with that view. Two bestowals of the Spirit seem unusual. Also, there's no indication that this temporary infusion with the Spirit had any effect on the disciples. There is no evidence that when Thomas returned to the scene, Jesus gave him the Spirit. Still others believe that Jesus was giving these disciples a symbolic and graphic, memorable introduction to the Spirit who would come upon them later. It was a demonstration of what Jesus would do after he returned to the Father, and which he did do on Pentecost. He was not imparting the Spirit to them in any sense here. This interpretation accounts for Thomas not receiving the Spirit before Pentecost. It also explains why this event may have had no permanently changing effect on the disciples comparable to that of Pentecost. Evidently, there was only one coming of the Spirit on these disciples, and that happened on Pentecost. This view seems to me to be more defensible, and I prefer it, though view one above is also possible. Baptism has no effect on our salvation. Baptism is an act of obedience. It's an act of our sanctification. When we believe, we are saved. That's why the thief went to heaven. Okay, he never got baptized. It's your identification with Christ. And so that is part of our sanctification. It has no saving effect, but it's something he tells us to do. And so we say, okay, Lord, 
because you say so, I will do that. So it's a blessing to do it. There, there are some churches that say that uh, unless you speak with tongues, you're not saved, that that is a requirement for salvation. The only biblical requirement is belief in Jesus. The moment you believe in Jesus, you're saved. So they're promoting deception in their in their people. Yeah. Okay, so Jesus teaching on belief. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. John does it again. The doors are shut. He wants to make sure you know that. And stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here in your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. That sounds uncomfortable to me. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that last is the purpose statement of the book. So verse 24, Thomas was not present when Jesus appeared the first time, and then he, as a saved person, did not believe. Faith needs exercise. This is what we talked about before. Even after you believe in Jesus, there are many times when you will not believe, and that is why we go through the process of discipleship. We want to get to the point where our faith is like Abraham's, where he was willing to execute his son <coughs> because God told him to, because he believed God would raise him from the dead. That is where we want to get. We want to get to a maturity like that, and it takes time. And then look at verse 29. Verse 29 is us. Blessed are they who did not see. Have you seen Jesus? I have not seen Jesus. Blessed are you who did not see and yet believed. So we're blessed. Okay. So I, I want to go through chapter 21 in a microsecond. <laughs> okay. Yes, because chapter 21 is a fishing trip. There's Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two others, seven total. Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They fished all night. They caught nothing. There was a man on the shore. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat. They caught a huge catch. John recognizes, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. <laughs> Okay, this was his third appearance after the resurrection, and then he restores Peter. Remember, Peter had denied him three times. And it's interesting in the Greek, Jesus says, do you love me, agape? Peter says, yes, you know I love you, phileo. There are four Greek words for love, agape, which is sacrificial love, phileo, which is brotherly love, storge, which is like a familial love, love in a family, and eros, which is a sexual love romantic love. So Jesus asked him, do you love me agape? Peter says, yes, you know that I love you, phileo. And he says, feed my sheep. He asks him again, do you love me agape? Peter says, yes, I love you, phileo, lesser love. He says, you know, take care of my sheep. And then Jesus says, do you love me phileo? And Peter says, yes, I love you, phileo. Peter never said agape. Jesus lowered his standard for Peter. I didn't know that before. I thought it was always agape. No, it wasn't always agape. Two times agape the last time phileo. So Jesus lowered his standard for Peter's weakness. 
things like there. And, you know, Peter did take care of the sheep afterwards. And he did grow to agape. So that's the end of the Gospel of John. Very exciting. For anyone who's listening online, this is so that you may believe and have eternal life in his name.